As we said a few moments ago, we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that we can assemble as one group again. And we hope and trust that as we study together from God's Word, that something we say could be a source of strength and encouragement and edification. And you'll leave here and you'll say it was good to have been in the Lord's house this morning. You know, the events of the past two weeks, as they have unfolded, these events point to some troubling times in our nation, folks. As a nation, collectively, we were appalled. We were shocked. We were horrified. We were angered at what happened to George Floyd. No rational person, no thinking person, no Christian could not have been outraged by that act. A man was murdered by a police officer. Someone who was entrusted to uphold the law. Who actually broke the law. And within 48 hours, every person in America knew who George Floyd was. And I'm quite sure that that Memorial Day, as he went out to get a sandwich, he expected to get his sandwich and return home. I feel confident he did not think he was going to be murdered on the streets of Minneapolis. He was accused of trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. Did he know the $20 bill was counterfeit? I don't know. And we'll never really know the answer to that question. And yet that is immaterial because the last time I checked or heard anything about it, passing a $20 bill or, cap or counterfeit money was not a capital offense. And so in the days that ensued, there were groups of people that decided it was prudent to hold demonstrations. And many of those demonstrations took a turn toward things that were violent and lawless. And they ceased to be demonstrations. And they became mobs of marauding thieves, looters and hoodlums. They destroyed property. They looted stores. They set fires. And many in those groups are attempting to destroy society as we have always known it. They also injured and they also killed people. Everybody knows who George Floyd was. They marched for George Floyd. They say they chant, say his name. How many people today are aware of who David Dorn was? David Dorn was a retired police officer with the St. Louis Police Department. And after he retired as an officer in the St. Louis Police Department, he became chief of police in a small town called Moline Acres, Missouri. He had a friend who owned a pawn shop in St. Louis. David Dorn was killed by the demonstrators looting his friend's pawn shop in St. Louis, Missouri. 
I haven't seen any demonstrations that talked about David Dorn's life being important. I haven't seen the national news media giving anything but passing coverage to the death of David Dorn. What's the difference? Both men's lives were taken needlessly. Both men's lives were snuffed out through thuggish behavior that should be severely punished. And by the way, both men were black men. Our hearts go out to both of their families. And the death of George Floyd and the death of David Dorn are both classic examples of man's inhumanity to man. And the ensuing lawlessness that we have endured as a nation shows that as a nation and as a people, my friends, we have gotten too far away from God. There are those in our nation, make no mistake about it, who seek to exacerbate our differences rather than attempt to heal our nation. There are those in our nation whose greatest desire is to divide us as a people rather than unite us as a people. There are those in our nation who are excellent at stirring up a group of people to a cause. Those same people have no concept of leadership. Folks, we have to understand something. There are sinister forces at work in this land of ours. And there is a real danger that the American dream is going to become the forgotten dream. Freedom is not the right to do as one pleases but rather the opportunity to please to do what is right. Our founding fathers sought freedom. They did not seek freedom from law. They sought freedom in law. They did not seek freedom from government. They sought freedom in government. They did not seek freedom from speech, but freedom of speech. Not freedom from religion, but freedom in religion. We need to ponder those things in our day and in our time. Our standard of values is out of focus. No nation on earth has more laws than America. And no nation has more lawlessness than America. And there is a current philosophy that the masses have more or less accepted. And that philosophy is if we don't like a law, we just need feel no obligation to keep it. Write this down. Any philosophy which in this way makes the will of the people its norm 
for morality and righteousness is a false philosophy. The test is, after all, not whether a law is popular, but is that law based on fundamental justice? What we desperately need in America of the 21st century is not law enforcement. It is law observance. Our government is in danger of being controlled if it is not already controlled by corrupt party machines, lawless gangsters, and cynical, ruthless, self-seeking lovers of power. And the only hope for this country, for our nation, comes from the Word of God. And it's in Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among the people, listen to it. If my people... which are called by My name, will humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. God in His Word says we need to humble ourselves and pray. Prayer is the only hope for our nation. Few of us, I am convinced, are making use of the privilege of prayer as we really should. I'm afraid for so many people, prayer as a working force is a lost art. There may be some that have been silenced in prayer because of intellectual difficulties. Maybe they just don't think God's there. Maybe they don't think God's listening. Maybe intellectually it's just not going to do any good. And then there may have been others that have given up the concept of prayer because of moral difficulties. They've gone to God in the secret place, and in the secret place they've come face to face with surrenders to God they weren't willing to make. And when called upon to give up self or give up prayer, a lot of folks have given up prayer. But, I think by far, the greatest number of people who have ceased to pray have done so, I'm quite sure through no definite conviction of the futility of prayer. But rather I think that folks have drifted into a habit of prayerlessness. Folks have allowed prayer to become 
crowded out. There have been duties that seemed more pressing than prayer. If you go over to the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 11 and verse 1, you find there that Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when Jesus had finished praying, His disciples came and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, maybe that's something we need to say to the Lord today. And you know, you think about it, it seems a bit strange that the disciples of Jesus would have said that, doesn't it? That they would have said, Lord, teach us to pray. No doubt, those men, those men that Jesus called to be His closest companions and His closest associates, no doubt those men had grown up in religious homes. They'd gone to church. They'd prayed all of their lives. And if you'd asked them a year earlier, do you know how to pray? Their answer would have probably been somewhat indignant. They would have probably even been offended. If somebody said to you, do you know how to pray? You'd be a little bit indignant, wouldn't you? We'd be a little bit offended by it. Of course we know how to pray. But they said, Lord, teach us to pray. You see, there's something about prayer that never lies right there on the surface. It's something profound. And to learn it, we've got to go to the very depths of our soul. And we've got to climb to the very heights of God. The depth of prayer is communication and communion with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Prayer is the key to success. And to not pray is to fail. I think about Jesus. I think about how Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed and He constantly addresses God in one way. He says, Father, only in His hour of darkness hanging on the cross does He vary from that fixed custom. And on the cross, He makes the words of one of the Psalms His own, and He says, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? But everywhere else, Jesus calls God Father. There are never any words of endearment. Sometimes He says, Holy Father. Sometimes He says, Righteous Father. He never employs the Dear Father, as we sometimes do. But for the most part, go read the prayers of Jesus. And Jesus felt that that one word, Father, was enough to bring Him into the presence of God without any qualifying adjectives. And think about where Jesus prayed. He prayed everywhere. He prayed with His disciples. And He prayed alone. Jesus prayed after the battle was won. And that's sometimes where we often fail. 
in dire straits. When the hour is dark, when things look bleak, we pray after a fashion. But when the battle is over, when deliverance has come, oh, thank goodness, and we fail and cease to pray. And because we cease to pray, oftentimes we change our successes into failures and we snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Folks, if prayer was central to the life of my Lord and my Savior Jesus Christ, prayer needs to be central in our lives also. Mine and yours. If Jesus' greatest times of stress and strain were on His knees, when are ours? Jesus agonized in the closet, but He walked with the stride of a conqueror when He went forth to the world. Too often, we take our ease in the closet. We cease to pray. We fail to pray and we go forth to defeat. And to failure. What we've done, we have failed to learn the lesson that Jesus is trying so hard to teach us. Here's the lesson to win in the place of prayer, that's to win everywhere. To fail in the place of prayer is to fail. Everywhere. And Jesus taught us to pray through His example. And through the example of Jesus, we should be more diligent in our prayers. God said, if my people will humble themselves and pray. We cannot overemphasize the importance of intercessory prayer. That's the specific name for prayer sent to God on behalf of another. Intercessory prayer. Too often the common thought of prayer is somewhat selfish. Too often our thought of prayer is, Lord bless me, my son John. Lord, bless me, my wife, my son John, his wife, us four, no more. Amen. That's kind of our thought of prayer sometimes. We're concerned about getting our own desires and our own wishes granted. But the most noble of prayers are the prayers for others. I want to share with you what Paul wrote to young timid Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. We are to pray for our rulers. 
And a prayer for rulers promotes peace and tranquility between communities and nations. And these people, rulers, particularly need our prayers because they are exposed to many dangers. They're exposed to greater temptations than other men and women are. But God has the power to influence their public actions. As we've seen over these past two months, those rulers in authority, governors and mayors, they have the power to promote the well-being of the church. They have the power to try and crush the church, as some have done. Paul says, pray that we might lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Here's a hard lesson for us. The duty that we have to pray for our rulers. The duty we have to pray for those in authority. Our duty to pray for them is not affected by them being pagans, oppressors, persecutors, or as many are, even aggressively anti-religious. The duty to pray for our rulers is not affected by their morality or their lack thereof. We should actually pray more earnestly for the kind of rulers that we have today, that God would change their hearts. Remember over in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus? He was on his way to Damascus. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And God shined a great light on him. God knocked him down. He beat him up and made him over and named him Paul. We need to pray for rulers today. That God will affect their lives the same way He did Saul of Tarsus. We pray for our rulers. Our governors, our mayors. We pray for them. We pray for our brethren. We pray for our brethren that their faith does not fail. And we pray for the sick that they might be healed. You know, praying for our brethren is an easy thing to do, isn't it? To pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that their faith stays strong, that's easy, isn't it? And to pray for those that are sick that their health could be restored, that's easy, isn't it? Here's where it gets tough. We also are to pray for our enemies. And sometimes I want to say, Lord, why? But you know what? Back in that first century, when it tells us in Acts chapter 8 that Saul was breathing out threatenings and slaughters, I bet you, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't bet you, I'd wager you, that there were Christians of that first century praying for Saul. And just as Christians in that first century were no doubt praying for Saul of Tarsus, 
we need to be praying for evil men and evil women today. We can best deal with our enemies not by doing them injury, but by dealing kindly with them and praying for them. Great benefits, folks, can come from intercessory prayer. There's a benefit for the one that's being prayed for. And there's also a blessing for the one that's doing the praying. Because when I'm praying for someone else, praying for someone else, that lifts us out of ourselves. And it makes us more unselfish. And it makes us more joyful. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. You see, that's the key to it. We've got to make sure that we're one of God's people. I was asking you when you came in, did you get your hands sanitized? And I was telling you, I said, well, we're sanitized and sanctified. Well, that's what we are. Set apart by God for His service. That means that Jesus Christ is the Lord and the Master of our lives. You see, for us to be on praying terms with God, for us to be on praying terms with God, we've got to be living our lives within the will of God. For us to be pray on praying terms with God, Jesus Christ has to be Lord and Master of our lives. Of all of our lives. If you need to make changes. To be on praying terms with God. For Jesus to be Lord and Master of your life. This is your opportunity to make those changes. As together we stand. And while we sing.